Welcome to The Way Podcast with your host, Bill Trofeski. Today's topic is porn, in particular, porn addiction. We are sitting down with Joshua Shia. Can you please introduce yourself and tell why you know about this topic? Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's pronounced Shay, but that's cool. Um, I am a porn addiction expert, and unlike a lot of academics or therapists out there, I actually come to this from a position of having been a former addict myself. I was an addict for about 20, 25 years, and uh, I have been clean now for six and a half years. I quit both porn and alcohol on the same day and have not relapsed on either, thankfully. And uh, I have written three books. I've done a lot of research about porn addiction. I do travel around and speak when we're allowed to go into groups of people at uh, colleges, churches, libraries, and whatnot. Anybody who will hear me or willing to hear me talk about porn addiction and how I truly believe it's a scourge uh, in our society Society that people just aren't talking about. And uh, the big thing I'm excited for here coming up in December is that I'll be doing my first TED Talk in Hartford. All right. Where's that going to be located? Uh, it's going to be uh, in downtown Hartford at, I believe it's either the Marriott or the Hilton. And uh, that'll be on December 6th. I don't believe that tickets have gone on sale yet. But if anybody's interested, they can look at TEDx hartford.com or they can simply go to the tedx hartford uh, facebook page and i'll have information up on my website once they provide it to me and my website is recoveringpornaddict.com all right for the listeners if you want to hear more about this topic be sure to check that out now what is porn addiction and what does it look like well porn addiction is really like any other addiction and what we have to understand is that uh, while other addiction, while there are every addiction has its own side effects, you know, if you are a smoker, you will likely uh, get lung cancer more than somebody who's a porn addict or more than somebody who's a gambling addict. But when it comes to brain chemistry, largely the same thing happens inside of everybody's brain when they become addicted to either a substance or a behavior. And the definition of addiction that I like the best is that uh, it's when you reach a point of understanding that your action uh, almost certainly will have negative effects on your life and on the lives of those around you, but you cannot stop that behavior or that substance. And uh, it, it can include making promises to yourself, losing interest in uh, things of your life prior to being addicted. Uh, ultimately, it's, it's cashing in your freedom. With pornography, it's just that simple. It's pornography that takes over your life and that uh, sets it down a bad road. Got it. I read somewhere that 5 to 8% of people have a porn addiction. And if you have a cyber porn addiction, it takes up uh, sometimes 11 to 12 hours of a week. Uh, I, I would believe that's true for for uh, maybe five to eight percent. But the statistics that I have seen very recently that have come out over the last four or five years uh, actually place it much higher. Um, there was a study done by the Barna Group, which is a uh, surveying company out of Texas. Uh, in 2018, 
they surveyed over 1,500 men between the ages of 18 and 30. And these men self-diagnosed themselves. This, this is not a doctor, but uh, 32% of the men between 18 and 30 self-diagnosed themselves as either being a full-blown addict or having an unhealthy relationship with pornography. And the Focus on Family organization in 2017 did a survey that found that 61% of U.S. households that it surveyed, uh, pornography was either a problem in that household or been a problem at one point in the last 10 years. So uh, it's really pervasively out there. And that's really why I'm talking about it is because we've got plenty of therapists. We've got plenty of doctors and academics. Average people don't know about pornography addiction. And I believe that had I been taught about it, had we known about it back in the 80s, um, I believe that I might not have been an addict. So I bring my story out there. I bring the statistics out there. And I just say that, you know, if we can have a conversation, if we can drop the taboos, we don't need to talk specifically about content of porn pornography, which I think is what scares a lot of people. Um, we need to talk about pornography as a concept and what it's doing um, to our society, especially those who are under 30, because this is the first generation of people who grew up without the Internet. And we're now starting to understand what absolute unfettered access to pornography will do to a generation. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, I thought 8 percent was high. That's uh, much higher. <laughs> That that's low. Eight uh, percent might be like the over fifty-year-old group. It could have been. Sadly, I don't remember. Where I got that stat from some article. But now you're saying with the new age. Now we know that you can find porn anywhere on your laptop in a few buttons, anywhere. And um, twenty-five percent of searches are related to porn. Actually, fun fact too. But how does that play into this porn addiction? Now that's at the at our fingertips. Well, um, it's one of those things where, uh, especially if you're young, I mean, young kids who the average boy sees pornography for the first time at eight years old, the average girl now sees it for the first time. And I'm talking hardcore pornography, not, you know, just a naked person uh, sees it about 10 years old. You know, we give these kids the best porn computer that's ever been invented in the uh, smartphone and send them on their way and don't give them any real instruction with it. And it's one of those things that in society, it's taboo. So that sends some kids towards it. You're also talking about kids who are in the early days of puberty, who are starting to get certain feelings. And, you know, like anything else, there's just a segment of them that come to recognize that this is something that helps them escape. This is something that soothes their problems. This is something that um, takes away their anxiety. You know, all of the reasons that people uh, end up using or becoming any type of addict. Um, ultimately, addiction is really uh, a symptom of a larger problem in 95% of all addicts. And the larger problem with porn addiction, uh, between 90 and 94% of porn addicts have unresolved childhood trauma from some kind of abuse, 
whether it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse, uh, almost everybody who ends up being a porn addict uh, has that and has some kind of abusive background. Um, and, and I'm no different that way. So it's kind of like a form of escapism. Absolutely. For myself, um, I I was the victim of both uh, sexual and mental abuse between the ages of about four and eight years old. Um, I was 11 or 12 when pornography was introduced to me by an older cousin. And I can tell you, Bill, that I was addicted the moment that I saw it. And I don't really even think it had to do anything with the naked person on the page. I don't know that it had to do with, you know, seeing sex for the first time. I think that it was something else entirely. And it just, it was like, it it was like the first time I got drunk when I was 13 or 14, a couple years later, I just felt like I had found something that was going to make me feel better. That was going to put me at ease. And, you know, years and years later, when I finally went to uh, inpatient rehab for uh, porn addiction and worked one-on-one with you know some of the therapists that they had there it was clearly about me having control issues because when i was with that babysitter when i was a kid and she made me feel unsafe because of the abuse i had at her hands you know i started to develop this, you know, hyper need for control. And if you look through my life, which, you know, I never really did that. But if you look through my life, there were all kinds of instances of needing control from uh, running my own businesses to running for local office in my town. You know, I don't like other people being in control. I want to be the one who creates my reality. And when it comes to pornography, I can have anything I want. If I want a blonde girl that day, I have a blonde girl. If I want two Asian girls, I have two Asian girls. You know, if I want three guys, a female midget and a horse, (laughs) while somebody throws fish sandwiches at them and other people are playing accordions in the background, I can have. And I can have that because nobody, whether it's in a magazine or on a video or on the computer, nobody is going to say no to me. That's real control is when you are, you know, pornography, nobody says no. Nobody tells you to take the trash out. Nobody tells you you're not doing a good job at work. Nobody is harassing you at all. It's a fantasy land where you are the king or you are the queen. You have complete control. And if I look over my life at those times where I felt less in control or I was having trouble at work or I was having personal issues, then... I can see those are the times that my pornography use spiked because I needed to create that illusion of control in my life. And that's largely the role that the pornography played. While I drank to numb myself, to to get away from my problems, to not feel anything, I looked at pornography so I could feel control. And, you know, I, I that would have never, ever occurred to me. But once I sat down with these therapists and these experts at rehab, and now that I've done a hell of a lot of research myself and wrote my own books, uh, I absolutely see that diagnosis is 100% correct. All right. I want to ask about your drinking in a minute. But first, you brought up the control with uh, the internet. What do you think about OnlyFans and how that's coming to be a new trend or YouTubers or things like that? 
my, my newest book is actually called Porn in the Pandemic. It came out in July, and one of the, th- one of the chapters is dedicated to OnlyFans uh, because this thing has exploded, and I don't, think, I don't think most people over 30 know it exists. Um, when I've done some shows like this uh, or just talking to people about pornography casually, nobody under 30, over 30 knows what OnlyFans is. Everybody under 30 does. And that shows you just how wide the gulf is and the technology gap is with people these days. You know, everybody over 30 has heard of Pornhub, but they haven't heard of OnlyFans. And OnlyFans had about 300,000 content creators back in January of 2020. And you and I are recording this, you know, middle of August 2020. And right now, if the uh, CEO is giving correct figures, there is now just over 900,000 content creators. That's 600,000 people who have joined OnlyFans to create pornography in the uh, you know, comfort of their own home. And I think it absolutely points to the pandemic because who were the people that lost their jobs for the most part? It was young uh, service workers, waiters, waitresses, bartenders, or who was bored and at home doing nothing. It was college kids who were all sent home early, and uh, all of a sudden, there's now a way to make money. And this is also the generation that, again, was raised on internet pornography, so they don't have the same uh, views of it that people who are my age or people who are older who would think, oh, my God, I could never go online and, you know, charge $10 for someone to see a picture of my ass. But it's nothing for a 20-year-old to do uh, or many 20-year-olds to do. It doesn't come with the stigma. It doesn't come with, you know, the belief that, you know, they're worried that somebody is going to find it 20 years from now. And I'm also not worried about that myself because there are just so many people making it. What I wonder is what is the emotional fallout going to be? What is the mental health going to be? You know, we are now, 20 years ago, people were asking, well, what happens with the internet? Now that there's porn everywhere, what happens when, you know, people get at it nonstop? Well, we're now starting to see that. It's a, it's a slightly sexually unhealthy society um, that's becoming addicted. Well, our next question is, what happens when we now have millions of people not just watching pornography? What happens when we have millions of people making it? You know, that can't ultimately be healthy. Uh, and I, I can't, I'm not going to moralize on it. I'm not going to shame anybody. I'm not going to embarrass anybody because everybody makes their own decisions. And I don't think you accomplish anything by moralizing. But before, you know, I know that there were a lot of doctors and, and, and you know, uh, older people in this field who are like, well, these girls and guys simply don't know how those pictures are going to come back to haunt them. And I, I don't think that's the issue because I think it's going to be one of these things. Everybody has these photos out there. When I was in school, it would have been crazy for the popular girl. And this was, you know, I, I went to high school in the uh, early 90s. It would have been crazy for the popular girl or their cheerleader to have a bikini picture going around. <laughs> But now you've got Instagram, 
and every girl in high school has bikini photos going around. And a lot of them actually have nudes going around because they take sexy photos for their boyfriends and girlfriends and they break up and then they get shared among their classmates. You know, so there is a real destigmatization of sharing their body with people. And uh, I, I don't know what the fallout is going to be from OnlyFans, but it has grown in eight months from uh, in both uh, consumers and producers in what took uh, Pornhub almost three years to grow at the beginning. Wow. So it's growing, it's growing that fast. And uh, I think it's, I think it's ultimately going to be like Snapchat because Snapchat was invented for sex. Oh yeah, they have that too uh, on Snapchat. Yeah. No, no, and no, no matter, no, you know, no matter what anybody wants to say, Snapchat was invented for sexting, but it turned into something else. And now almost everybody uses it. I look at the OnlyFans platform and I think, you know, this is perfect for indie musicians. This is perfect for authors or artists to share their work it's it is an a really good interface but like so many pieces of new technology pornography finds it first and now we've got this you know you know hundreds of thousands of 18 to 30 year olds creating pornography at home and putting it out there on the internet and uh that's uh that's scary because we don't know what's going to happen yeah even like 100 200 years ago wasn't it if a girl showed her ankles wasn't that like a big thing too yeah it, it depended where you were i mean t talking about the bikini thing i remember uh my grandmother who's she's dead now but about you know 30 years ago when i was a kid we were looking through some old photos and she had a two-piece bathing suit um uh, and you could see about one inch of her stomach it was just barely technically a two-piece bathing suit and my grandfather commented about how his mother thought that made her a whore and how you know it was disgusting that she was parading her body around like that and now you know every girl in the world now shows belly with the shirt she's wearing that shows you just in 60 70 years how much things have changed um but it's also important to point out that we have always had sexuality and we have always had pornography you can go back to ancient phoenician times and you look in some of the caves you're gonna find basically pornography drawn on the walls of those caves you go to any fine art museum you look at some of the egyptian artifacts you're gonna find some really hardcore sex acts depicted on some of their uh, pottery so you know i i try to stress to people my uh, vision and my uh, mission is not to get rid of pornography because that's stupid. That's never going to happen. You can't put a prohibition on it. We saw what happened when you tried with alcohol, and I think it would be even harder with pornography. So I, I am not uh, tried and true anti-porn. I think it's silly to say that the world should have no porn. I think it's silly to say everybody who uses it becomes an addict. What I just really want to do is make sure that people understand what they're getting involved with before they get involved. Now, adding on to the desensitization, one topic some people are bringing up is actually legalizing prostitution. What do you think about that? Well, George Carlin had a very funny line about that. He said, selling is legal, fucking is legal. Why is selling fucking not legal? Um, I think it's one of those things that's happening anyway. 
Um, and while on a you know moral level, I wouldn't want my daughter to get involved. I wouldn't want anybody I love to get involved. I would hope that you know a son or brother or male relative of mine wouldn't need to uh, purchase a prostitute. Um, I think that's one of those things that um, you know. Th there's no clear answer on it. I I have never. S I know that it can increase trafficking. I know that it can you know lead people who are involved to having worse lives and developing problems because they have no choices but to go into that life. But these are the arguments that people have been making about pornography for a long time. Oh, the girls and the guys, they're all drug addicts or they've been abused. And what I always point out to people is that these arguments have never stopped people from using porn. You know, if you if you're looking at a porn actor or actress and you say, this person probably had a rotten childhood, and I bet after work this person has to go home and you know take some rips off a big bong just to deal with life. Well, walk into a you know Applebee's kitchen or a or a Buffalo Wild Wings kitchen, and you tell me how many of those people there had great childhoods, and how many of them you know go home and take a big rip on a bong, you know. People's lives aren't happy. A lot of people's lives aren't happy. And that's never going to be enough uh, fuel to get people to stop using. Now that you've got things like OnlyFans that absolutely middle American men and women or young men and women are, you know, glomming onto the argument that it, it's it's uh, it's only fractured, broken people who are getting into it doesn't quite hold as much water. And I think that if prostitution was legalized, you'd probably see a lot of that as well. I think you'd see, you know, the way that the med student, you know, who is a good-looking woman, puts her way through college by stripping. Well, you know. What if she just takes that one step forward and makes it about sex um, and starts having sex with people? Obviously, the, you know, STDs, pregnancy, all of that stuff. Um, I ultimately, I think that uh, purchasing sex is not healthy. So if it came down to a referendum, I would I would try to keep things the way they are. But if prostitution became legalized, um, I, I, you wouldn't see me picketing it. Gotcha. Well, you said marijuana, like the, well, first I'm going to say once you reach 25, marijuana doesn't have any negative effects unless you become an addict, which I believe 30% of people do. Marijuana is addicting people. But I found a stat, correct me if I'm wrong, but 79% of porn stars use marijuana and 50% use ecstasy. I have no idea. Um, I'll, I'll trust your stat. Well, I was wrong um, before. So <laughs> I would, I would, I, well, I think, you know, I would, I would tend to believe that about uh, marijuana, but I would believe that about a lot of people who are in industries that they probably didn't want to see themselves in or, or younger people. Um, you know, it's, it's, let, let's be honest. It's not when you, when it comes to being a, top level porn star those are not your average everyday joe um 
for somebody to rise to the top in that industry, you know, usually something has to has to be a little off in their lives. Just like anybody who rises to the top of the music industry, there's usually something a little off in their lives. Uh, you know, there used to be a show on VH1 called Behind the Music, and it was always a 60-minute documentary about one of the big musicians of the day. There was not a single happy episode about it. You know, everybody who rises to a certain level of fame has something a little bit twisted inside of them to to seek out that kind of fame, to need that kind of fame. And whether you need that kind of fame as an actor or as a singer or as a porn star, um, I think that probably is more indicative of why you need to self-medicate than the fact that you're having sex on film. Gotcha. Joe Rogan is by no means an, means an expert, but yeah, he said the same thing in one of his podcasts. I forgot which one it was. But so OnlyFans, stuff like that. I saw a projection that virtual reality porn should be a billion dollar industry by 2025. So now I, I don't buy it. You don't buy that one? Because people have been saying that since the early 90s. That virtual reality, whatever virtual reality is at that moment, porn is going to take it over. And then it goes from, you know, 16 bits to 32 bits. Virtual reality porn is going to take it over. Sex is one of those things that you're never going to be able to have by computer. Any person who masturbates to pornography can tell you you're never going to have it by by computer anybody who goes and buys a big hunk of rubber at an adult bookstore brings it home and puts lube all over it and fucks it can still tell you that it's not a real woman and i think that virtual uh reality pornography while you may get a few people who are into it it will never go mainstream because it's going to be too it's going to be too expensive i mean look at those real dolls that they sell that cost ten thousand dollars uh i've seen anywhere from eight to twenty thousand dollars depending on how real you want it to be but at the end of the day you're still fucking a rubber doll you know you know it's not the same thing you can't turn your mind off even if you're you know having sex with whoever you want in virtual reality uh you still understand this is not actual reality you're not actually doing it it's kind of weird to think like somebody buys that has the vr thing and they're seeing whatever they're seeing but just you take a step back and look at that person from a third eye view. That's kind of just like a person in a room just fucking a doll. Yeah, right. exactly. And and I don't think that, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I've tried the VR helmets that have, you know, roller coasters and whatnot, and they're somewhat realistic, but I, you know, and I, with the wind blowing at you and, and, and depending on the setup, uh, I still know I'm not on a roller coaster. Uh, you know, it gives me sensations of, of moving around and stuff, but I know I'm not on a roller coaster and I can't imagine if I strapped on a helmet and thought that I was having sex with somebody that it would, uh, anything would happen. And like I said, you go, people have been predicting this about virtual reality for 25 years, um, you know, and people will be able to have sex with their computers and, and all this. And uh, it's never happened. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those technological things people talk about but i never see it coming to fruition gotcha so one of the downsides to porn addiction i've read is it fucks with your sex life say if you have a wife or you like to just get around 
How true is that? Or is it not true? Uh, well, it, it, it depends. Um, who, you know, who you are and what your situation is, of course. Everybody's individual. But um, when I talk to uh, girlfriends and wives of porn addicts, my second book uh, I wrote with a therapist, and it's specifically for the partners of porn addicts, which are, you know, almost always the porn addicts are almost always men. Um, you know, I try to drive the whole point home that they are flooding their pleasure receptors in their mind. You know, that's what addiction is. You keep flooding these pleasure receptors with uh, chemicals like dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin. And that's what gets you the high of the addiction. That's what gets you that escape feeling or that control feeling or whatever it is, whatever the reason is you're using. And that's true with all uh, addictions. We just associate porn addiction with intercourse because they both generally end with an orgasm. But that is often where the line is drawn. I didn't, I, you know, I, I've been married now for, Jesus, 18 years. And it was six years ago that I finally faced my porn addiction. So I was married for 12 years prior until the very, very end uh, of my addiction. I had a very normal sex life uh, because the, what I got from intercourse with my wife, things like physical love, things like intimacy, things like the touch of a human, I couldn't get that with pornography. And I try to drive home the point to wives of addicts that addiction is a disease. Addiction is a disease of the brain, and it's not a matter of him choosing to use pornography over have sex with you. If he was a gambling addict, he would probably not be having sex with you. If he was a heroin addict, he would probably not be having sex with you. Because addicts, especially when they move along in their addiction to a critical phase, generally their their uh, sex drive drops because those chemicals are being you know overrun by the pleasure chemicals that that deal with their addiction. Uh, so while it's hard for a lot of partners to understand, because when you discover that, you know, your husband or boyfriend is a porn addict and you had no idea, uh, there's a phenomenon called betrayal trauma that happens. And that's where you kind of ask yourself as, as the partner, well, what else has he lied about? Who is this man? I don't even know him. And I always try to tell these women that, you know, I would think from a completely objective point of view and I've had probably 70% of women agree with me and 30% disagree who I've shared this with that if I was the partner of a man who looked at pornography, I would probably feel better knowing he was an addict because that would mean that I have nothing to do with it. My wife had nothing to do with my pornography addiction. I'd been an addict for 10 years before I met her. She didn't make me this way. She wasn't, she didn't like screw up in the bedroom or wasn't sexy enough or anything like that. My issues, you know, came out through pornography addiction. That just happened to be the, the, the way that I went, you know, that, that and drinking. Um, the, I would be more worried if I was a woman and my boyfriend or husband was a recreational porn user and he passed up sex to just get off with the computer. Uh, that would that would bother me more because that is truly a conscious objective choice. Um, 
you know, there were a lot of times where I never reached orgasm looking at porn. There are a ton of men who will tell you they'll sit there, look at porn for three, four hours and, and never end up having an orgasm. But they saw the porn and that did what they needed to do for their brain. So uh, it's very easy to confuse uh, the world of intercourse and the world of, you know, real life sex with pornography addiction, but the intersections are far less than you actually think. But let me ask, how come, like, if you have a wife or a husband and you have this human body and sex is arguably better than porn, why be addicted to the porn rather than the sex? Because I can tell you for myself, my wife didn't didn't satisfy my control issues. If I had a bad day at work and I came home and had sex with my wife, I might I might you know I I love the fact she loves me. I love you know touching her and and her touching me. But it didn't help anything for you know what was in my mind that needed the satiating. She couldn't numb me out like alcohol. She couldn't you know make me feel like I was in control of my life. Um, you know it's it's a look at it in terms of you know gambling addiction. Somebody goes, they, let's say they go to a casino, they, they start betting $10 a hand on blackjack. Before long, they have to start betting $100 because if they want that same high, they need to up their, their bet. They need to make it a little more risky, put a little more out there. Then they go up to 500 or maybe 1000 and it has nothing to do with how much money they make. It has nothing to do with how much money their wife makes. You look at somebody who is a food addict. You know, it's not that they love cake that much more than you and I do. It's that the cake uh, serves some purpose and hits their pleasure sensors in a way that a non-addict can't understand. When you say, just put the fork down, well, their brain is screaming at them. And when people can't understand addiction, I tell them to try this experiment. And most people seem to understand it a bit more that way. Um, tomorrow or, or this weekend or whenever, when you wake up in the morning, take your smartphone and Turn on all of the alerts, uh, whether it's text or telephone or Facebook or Snapchat, whatever it is, turn on all the alerts as loud as you can. And then get a post-it note and put it right across the screen. And then put that phone next to you and don't look at it, no matter what you hear. And the first time, yeah, it's kind of easy. You know, somebody sent you a text, whatever. And the next thing you hear is a little Facebook chime. And the next thing you hear is a Snapchat chime. And then maybe the phone rings. And then there's another two texts. And then there's quickly three or four texts. So maybe this is important, but I can't lift up that that uh, post-it note to look at the phone. Because most people in this world are addicted to their telephones. And if you try this, and I've had people who have actually tried this after I've suggested it, and they've come back to me and said, oh, my God, I had no idea that I was addicted to my phone. And I said, yeah, here's the thing. Somebody like myself who grew up in a home where I was a kid, we had a typical rotary phone with no answering machine, you know, if, if, and no call waiting. If somebody was on the phone and somebody died and was trying to get through to contact them, you just had to wait, and the person was still dead when they got through. And 
it didn't really implode society that we all couldn't, you know, look at our phones every second, that we couldn't take a picture of every meal that we had in front of us, that we couldn't get on Facebook and tell everybody what our kid did that day or when we're going to the gym and how our workout was. We're a nation that's addicted to our phones. And if you think you're not addicted, try this, try covering up the front of your phone and leaving it next to you and not looking at it because that's that feel that most people get when after six or seven chimes, they're going to rip that post-it note right off. That's like the addict taking the drink or placing the bet or looking at the porn. You have this little, you need that reward. And for society today, getting that text, getting somebody to like your picture on Instagram or make a comment on whatever Reddit post you made, that's the fuel that drives so many people these days that's the little dopamine hit you know that's the feeder bar that the you know pavlov's dogs used they you know when you hear that ding you start salivating and if you think that uh if you think that that's all that different than addiction it really isn't it's just that you can't see what i'm addicted to every day all the time yeah i found that funny because i know i i think i tried it and after the first hour it was already painful so you said by a second day, talk about the second hour. <laughs> got caught at Yeah. Yeah, got caught. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the things I tell people is, okay, so that first day you experienced addiction. Let's say you got through it. The next day, you still have your phone, but now you have to figure out how to do everything without it. No more GPS on your phone. How are you going to figure out how to get somewhere? Well, you have to use a map. Okay, well, no, you know, no more uh, texting. How are you going to talk to somebody? Well, you're going to have to maybe write a letter. And it's one of these things where that's what recovery is. And that's why recovery is so hard, because you have to figure out a different way to live. And that's why so many people fail at recovery. And it doesn't matter the addiction. People fail because you have to essentially reinvent your life. And it's so hard because you know that cell phone is sitting right over there and you can get everything you want with it. You want to read the news. You want to take take a picture. You want to listen to a song. It's all there. You just have to go take it. And that's what addiction is. It's that craving. And uh, recovery is learning how to live a different life without that addiction. Uh, and it's challenging. And, you know, like I, I urge people to try this phone thing because you will begin to understand what addiction is. And you'll begin to understand why, you know, I needed to, you know, my brain was screaming at me to use porn at night. It wasn't screaming at me to go have sex with my wife. For something like porn addiction or even the phone addiction, how long till it gets easier to finally not be addicted? Can you ever fully even overcome it? I, you know, I think, again, that depends on the individual person. I can tell you that uh, it probably was harder in the beginning for me to drop porn than alcohol. But I can tell you now that six, seven years later, I have just about no triggers when it comes to pornography whatsoever. I actually had to go on to Pornhub to do some research for my latest book. And it was the first time that I went on a pornographic website. Did it tempt you in, at all? In six years. No, it didn't. And that's what I was afraid of. I, I was I was close to asking my wife to go do the research because I, there's a piece in my book where I talk about how uh, – 
incest fantasy porn is the biggest genre out there, but Pornhub tries to hide the fact that that's what their biggest genre is. And I needed to get some specific search numbers. And I thought, you know, I can ask my, my wife to do this. I could ask my daughter who's 21 to go do this for me. But I said, no, I need to do this. And I went on there and I, I saw all the, you know, uh, what do you call it? Thumbnails. And I just, I just kind of felt sad and bad. It was a bunch of young people who didn't look happy, who, who I couldn't imagine being in their position and there was nothing sexy about it. It didn't scratch any itch in my head. I got the search uh, stuff that I needed and I turned it off. This was back in, I think I, I used it in early May or maybe it was late April and I haven't been back and I haven't felt the need to go back. So I feel like the porn thing has been pretty easy longer term to take care of. However, I still every once in a while do get triggered with the drinking. I still have dreams about drinking um, where I don't about pornography. And I had dreams about both in the very beginning of recovery. So for me, in the short term, it was harder to give up pornography. In the long term, it's been a little bit harder to give up alcohol, but I gave up both the same day in 2014, and I have not relapsed on either. And I don't consider going onto Pornhub and doing that research as relapsing because I didn't use what was there for pornographic purposes. Uh, I used it for research purposes. Uh, so I couldn't drink for research purposes unless I was, you know, writing a review of some kind of alcohol, but I wouldn't put myself in that position, nor would I put myself in a position to write any kind of review about pornography. But, uh, you know, I also believe, um, and it's a little bit, uh, it gets in the face of some people who are early in recovery, that we do have to test ourselves with our triggers. Uh, that we do have to learn to overcome our triggers. If you're going to be real in recovery, you need to recover. Uh, I did the 12-step groups, both Alcoholics Anonymous and Sex Addicts Anonymous, uh, for a while. And what I saw, a lot of the people, I don't think they were at all uh, healthier than when they drank or when they looked at porn or had sex addictions. Uh, they just were white-knuckling it. They were abstaining but nothing, they didn't go see any therapist to learn about why they became that way. They never learned about any of their trauma. All they, uh, they were, you know, what we call dry drunks in AA. Uh, they, they were still alcoholic in their head. They just weren't drinking. And to me, that's not recovery. Recovery is fully understanding why you became the way you did. And then learning how, when those triggers come in your life, that you can turn away from them. You know, if I was the kind of person who I went to a restaurant and my, my wife has no alcohol problem, she has, you know, she probably has a bottle of wine a month at home. And when we go out to eat dinner, sometimes if it's a nicer place, she'll have a glass of wine. And if I couldn't handle that, well, I wouldn't be able to go out to any restaurants. I wouldn't be able to go into any 7-Eleven or any other convenience store or any grocery store because, you know, my drug of choice is sold right there. Um, but you have to learn how to control those triggers and it's very hard in early recovery. And I don't advise anybody to push themselves too hard in early recovery, but, uh, I think to truly 
get to a quality of life where you put your addiction behind you, uh, you you need to be able to face your triggers or your former triggers and, and move forward. You know, football season still gets me when it comes to drinking. Uh, I'm never going to be able to go bar hop like I once did. And I, I, I miss that because that was fun. Um, but I can't do that anymore. I have to choose to say no. I have to choose to not be around people who are drinking when football's on. So I go either hang out with my dad and watch it, or I watch it because he doesn't drink, or I watch it by myself. And that's what I have to do to stay sober around football. You know, you, you, you just have to figure out a way to live your life, but still live a quality life. Got it. You, um, on your website, I saw, and you mentioned it too, that <laughs> you went to jail and yes. did that happen? Was that alcohol related? What caused you to no, go to jail? No, no, it was, it was porn related. Uh, what happened with me is that in uh, 2013, I was the publisher of a magazine here locally in central Maine. And um, my business started to fail after about five, six years. And I'm a very good businessman when I have too much money to play with because I can hide the fact I don't know what the hell I'm doing. But we reached a point where our expenses were starting to outstrip our revenue. And month after month, it was getting a little bit worse, and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, I started using porn a little bit more. I started using alcohol a little bit more, but it wasn't getting too far out of hand compared, you know, I'd been doing it at this level for 20 years. Uh, I made a very bad decision uh, in mid-2013 that I was going to pull myself off of some bipolar medication that I've been taking since my early 20s because I have bipolar disorder. Um, I I think I rationalized what the mania was like when I was young. I rationalized that I had it would give me energy. Um, I rationalized that I could save my business by tapping into parts of my mind that the medicine was holding me back from. You know, I looked at the medicine kind of like a restrictor plate on a race car. And if I took that restrictor plate off, I could save my magazine. Unfortunately, what happened was about two weeks after I stopped taking the medicine, the uh, addictions exploded because instead of having that regulatory medicine in my system that kept my addictions at a, uh, you know, functionable, I guess I'd say level, um, I started first drinking multiple times a day. I would drink before I went to work. I would have a liquid lunch by myself. I didn't ask people to go out to lunch with me. I always tried to make our late afternoon meetings, happy hour meetings. And I drank at home at night uh, every day of the week, where in the past it had probably been three or four nights a week. Um, the porn use also started to explode. Uh, I would uh, look at it at home, after my wife went to work, my kids went to school, I would look at it um, in the morning uh, before I went to work. I would uh, you know, wait till the kids and my wife went to bed at night and start looking at it almost immediately where it was not a daily thing and it was certainly not a multiple times a day daily thing. And much like I explained earlier how you, know, you build a tolerance, the guy who drinks beer has to move to wine, has to move to hard stuff. And for the first time in my life, I actually moved from beer to tequila. Um, I 
my porn use escalated and it got to the point where I started going into chat rooms um, and I started talking with women and these were, you know, back and forth, just uh, my camera to their camera. And I figured out a way to bypass my camera. So I was showing a video of a good looking, you know, 25 year old guy um, who looked like he was just typing on his computer. And I was able to get women to stop and uh, talk to me. And after a while, I was able to get them to start taking their clothes off because I that was ultimately where my power needed to go. I didn't feel powerful enough just looking at whatever I needed to look at on a screen. I needed to control somebody because with the magazine falling apart, with, you know, my alcohol increasing, you know, my life was quickly going out of control. I was doing things like sleeping three hours a night. I wasn't showering for four or five days at a time. My life was really imploding. And so I found the only respite was between midnight and 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. was to go onto this one website that was a, a cam to cam chat site and try to find women who I could uh, coerce into doing what I wanted. And I, it wasn't like I wanted a, uh, I didn't want a woman who I would say, hey, flash, and they'd just flash. I wanted a woman who said she wouldn't flash. So then I could spend an hour trying to figure out how to get her to flash. That was where the game was to me. That was where the control was to me. And while she was looking at this video of a guy typing, I was able to ask her little questions and get little bits of information and do research on her on the other half of my computer screen. And as I said before, I've got a history as a journalist. I've got a history as an investigative journalist. You know, I'm very good at asking leading questions. I'm very good at getting information out of people who don't think they're giving it to me. Uh, you know, I, I could be one of those fake psychics who does cold readings because I know how to, you know, get little bits of information and connect it. So, for instance, you know, I might, you know, a woman might say, oh, well, you know, my grandmother died a few weeks back. And it's like, okay, well, that's good to know. What was your grandma's name? Oh, it was Ethel. Okay, Ethel was her grandmother's name. And, she, and this girl herself went to Pepperdine University and graduated in 2012. Well, those are the only two pieces of information I have, and then I can have her whole life history on the computer. So let's say I find this girl's Facebook page. And, oh, look, in her pictures years ago, she was in competitive horse jumping. Well, all of a sudden, when I'm talking to her, I say something like, I can't be on here too long tonight because I'm going to go watch my little sister do her horse jumping tomorrow. And immediately that girl feels a bond to me. And you do these little things where you drop bonds and it's just it's just grooming. I mean, I look back on it and think this is sick. This is disgusting. This is this this is exactly what you see on Dateline NBC, and this is exactly what uh, you know stalkers and predators do. I was doing this kind of uh, uh, grooming on these women that I found online in the middle of the night. Um, fast forward to 2014, uh, March 20th, 2014. I'm sitting at home uh, doing some work in the morning before I go into the office, and I see two cars and a van pull up to my house. And you don't have to, you know, know what cop shows from the 70s and 80s are like to recognize unmarked cars that are police cars. And I had no idea why they were there whatsoever. Um, so I went to the door because I thought someone must have died. And uh, they told me that 
they had a warrant for my home and my computers because they believed that I had child pornography on my computers. And I was shocked to hear it. I invited them in because when you have a warrant, you have to invite them in. And I sat down and you know they start to ask me about my pornography habits and i was very forthright and, and forthcoming with them um although i knew you know something had to be up here and then they laid out their case to me that a girl that i talked to in november 2013 had been a minor and uh while i didn't know about it there's really no excuse for it because you and I both know that there are 15 and 16-year-old girls who look 25 or 26, and there are 25 and 26-year-old girls who look 15. And, you know, ultimately, uh, they had me, and I couldn't, I couldn't debate them on it. Um, and one of the things that I did, um, again, because of control, because of trying to prove myself, um, if you would have uh, ever come to my office uh, at the magazine uh, company that I was at, if you walked into my office, Bill, you would have seen trophies and plaques on the walls and certificates that, that I'd been awarded from all different groups. And I didn't have those on the wall to prove to you what an awesome guy I was. I had them on the wall to prove to myself what, I'm awesome, what an awesome guy I was because I never believed it. And in this need for trophies, one of the things that I did at the end of a chat with a woman, if I was successful in getting her to show her boobs or, or masturbate or whatever, I took a screen capture of it. And I kept these all in a folder, you know, in my computer, not to use for masturbatory purposes, because I knew how to find naked people on the internet. I didn't need it for that. I kept them because they were like my trophies. They showed that I was capable of doing something. They made me feel better when I looked at them. And it wasn't a sexual high they gave me. It was a control high they gave me. And unfortunately... This girl who was a teenager who I got to uh, do sex acts on the computer, I had taken two screen captures of her. And in taking two screen captures of her, that was considered uh, manufacturing child pornography. So uh, I was arrested um, and, uh, you know, booked. I went to the sheriff's office. My wife bailed me out. Uh, she brought me home. By the time she brought me home, less than an hour after I'd been arrested, there was already a TV news camera in front of my house because I was very well known in my community as the guy who runs the magazine and then the guy who was a city councilor. Um, so it was kind of a big deal around here because I was a bit of a local celebrity or local personality that people knew. Um, and what I started to do almost immediately um, was to get myself healthy because I recognized uh, that I was going to lose my family if I didn't get myself healthy. I didn't care about my job at that point. Um, I knew the magazine was finished as, as soon as you know all that hit the front page of the newspaper. But I knew that I had to get better. And my lawyer said it great. He said, you know, all of the legal stuff will be over one day but you don't want to be the same asshole at the end of it. So get yourself healthy. And I spent two years. I went to rehab for alcoholism first. Then I went to rehab for porn addiction. I did hundreds of hours, if not thousands of one-on-one -on -one and group therapy. I read everything I could get my hands on about it. And uh, ultimately it came time to pay the piper. And I got six months in uh, county jail for, what I did, and I am uh, not at all hesitant to say I absolutely deserved it. 
And I hope that it served as a warning to people in the community that you can't do what I did. Um, my addiction is no excuse for what I did. Um, because the fact is, I stopped taking my bipolar medication. And I knew that I needed those to function properly. I didn't care about it. And while not taking those pills and truly embracing my addictions brought me to a place where cause and effect was uh, somewhat blurry, uh, nonetheless, uh, it was totally my fault. And I totally deserved what I had coming to me. And I hope to God that that girl, she's in her 20s somewhere now. Um, I hope that she had no deep scars. I hope that she went on with life just fine, because that would, that would really make me sad to think that I, I permanently, you know, scarred somebody doing that to them. Um, and I also have to reckon with the fact that, yeah, just because she was a teenager and the others were adults doesn't make it okay. You shouldn't do that whether somebody's 16 or 26 or 56. Um, so that that's ultimately what put me into jail for six months. But that the, when I was in jail, it was the healthiest version of myself I'd ever been because I spent two years getting my shit together. And as I was in jail, that's when I decided I wanted to write my books uh, and I wanted to be a voice for this because you're sitting in a jail cell thinking, how did I get here? And I think I came to the reason of I ultimately didn't know anything about pornography addiction. I didn't become a heroin addict. I didn't become a cocaine addict. I didn't become you know a lot of different kinds of addicts, but I became a pornography addict. And had I known, would that have helped? And I'm sure it might have helped, or maybe it would have not helped. I don't know. I still became an alcoholic. But I believe that if we can have a conversation as a society and talk about the potential dangers of pornography, especially on children and teenagers, that maybe we can have less overall addicts in this world. Maybe a few who are predispositioned to becoming porn addicts won't go down that road. And in jail was when I made the decision to try to become proactive and a bit of an activist. And uh, the only thing that I'm really good at in this world is writing. So I started writing my books. Got it. And that means also legally you're a sex predator and now you got to go house to house and tell people that too. Uh, no, uh, in Maine, I did not have to, uh, every state has, it's one of those interesting things. The, uh, sexual offender registry, uh, is ultimately housed with the FBI, but it's a state to state thing. And every state has different rules in Maine because my, uh, crime was hands off. Uh, it, I didn't have to go house to house. There was no flyers that were put up or anything like that. Uh, I am on the main sex offender registry, uh, but there wasn't a lot of the uh, public shaming that comes with those people who have uh, hands on offenses um, like rape or gross sexual assault. Now, I got to ask. Like what you said, what that story, that is definitely a intense story to say the least. What did your family think through all of that? Uh, 
my wife, thankfully, she works in healthcare, so she understood addiction. She also knew that I was quite sick. She thought that it was only with alcohol, but when I told her it was pornography, she kind of understood. She had caught my browser history in the past, and it was pornography. And, you know, she was kind of of the position that boys will be boys, and she had no idea just how much I did it. Because you got to remember, I had 10 years before I met her to perfect hiding it from people. So if you're not looking for it, you won't find it. And, uh, you know, I have since come clean about everything with her and she's, you know, understands my story. Um, But my family, you know, um, I think that they were ultimately most concerned for my health, uh, number one, and wanted me to get better. Um, I know that, you know, my daughter at the time, unfortunately, she was, uh, you know, she was 15 or 16 years old when it happened. So there was a level of real shame there with her. And I know that she got bullied by some of her classmates. Um, But, you know, I also got some nice phone calls from some of her friends' parents, you know, telling me if they needed anything or Catriel needed anything um, to let let them know. Um, You know, it's one of those things where... A lot of people are quick to crucify somebody when they uh, see that kind of charge. Um, But I try not to judge people, even before this, I try not to judge people on their biggest mistake of their lives. You know, I know that somebody who is drunk driving and hits a kid didn't want to hit that kid. That doesn't necessarily make them an evil person. It makes them a sick person. And that's really uh, the position that I take is that I was sick and my parents and my family learned a lot about addiction. And I think that that gave them a lot of perspective on what happened. And ultimately, it taught me how to kind of ignore the people who uh, who were who were naysayers and you know, whether people are telling you how awesome you are or whether people are telling you how terrible you are, and I have heard both huge in my life, um, most of them are not coming from a place where they understand the facts. Most of them are not coming from a place of logic. So those people who I loved when I was running my magazine or I was on the city council who agreed with me, you know, I loved them because they were telling me what an awesome guy I was. But it was the exact same people who were telling me what an evil piece of shit I was after the news broke of what happened. And it made me real. And they would, you know, they would post things on Facebook that were 100% incorrect. And it made me realize that, you know, when they were holding me up and saying I was great, they weren't coming from a place of legit reality. And when they were tearing me down, they weren't coming from a place of legit reality. You know, it's it's one of those things where it taught me not to take what other people believe or say um, so much to heart. Um, I did a horrible thing. You know, I think about it every single day. I wish I could go back and change what happened. As much as I'm enjoying talking to you, Bill, I wish it never happened. Um, and I could go back, uh, you know, six and a half years and change what happened. But it did happen. And the way that I'm built is to try to figure out what can I do to turn this into a positive? And when I was in jail, um, the people there knew who I was because they ran stories in the newspaper about me, you know, even right before I got into jail. So when I entered the pod, 
a couple of guys came up to me and said, we know who you yeah, are. Don't they hate that and, kind of stuff in prison too? Isn't that like a big no? Well, well, they, they hate hands-on child predators, but hands-on child predators generally don't get put with a general population. Um, I was put into minimum security because I had, I, I've never been arrested. I've never, you know, aside from a speeding ticket, I'd never got anything from the police before. I was also put into protective custody, um, uh, which means I'm always with an eye shot of a guard because they didn't want anybody messing with me. And I was with about 15 guys who were in the same boat as far as minimum security and protective custody. Not all of us had sex crimes. Some did. Some had much worse than I did. But we just all wanted to kind of get get through it. So we didn't, you know, nobody harassed each other. We were all, we were fine with each other because we were all there for different reasons. We all did something wrong. And, uh, you know, no, no sense dwelling on it or trying to pass judgment. I mean, we're all sitting in jail. Let's not pass judgment on each other. But what happened was a lot of these guys, no matter what their crime was, a lot of them came up to me once they got my, once I got their, uh, approval and once they started to trust me and i remember i had a guy come up and say to me once you know i think that i have a porn addiction can i tell you about it and i said sure and first thing he tells me is that he's never had lunch at work with his friends he always makes an excuse drives down to the mall you know a mile away and watches porn on his phone for 50 minutes and that's what he does every day. And it's like, yes, that sounds like an addiction. And I talked to him about it. You know, why was he doing this and whatnot? There was another guy who came to me and he had been, he was probably about 25 years old. He had been married since he was 18. And, you know, he asked me, he said, you know, I, I've cheated on my wife. Uh, it makes me wonder if I have a, have a sex addiction. You know, am I addicted to having sex with other women? Well, how many have there been? Well, probably between seven and 800, I guess. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, I think you do have an addiction. And I started to talk to these guys. And the most fascinating thing of this of, of doing this was that they were more embarrassed by their stories of pornography or of their stories of sex than they were about any drug charge they were there on. They were more embarrassed about sex and pornography than they were about any domestic violence or any armed robbery or anything else they did. They could talk about their crime. They couldn't talk about the sex or pornography. And that was when I was in jail, I started writing my first book because it dawned on me we need to get it out there that, you know, a lot of guys are suffering uh, and it's every type of person. There is no stereotypical porn addict. You know, when I was in rehab, I met men and women, rich, poor, every religion, every nationality. There is no stereotypical porn addict, just like there's no stereotypical gambling addict or smoker or food addict. Um, anybody can be a porn addict. And I realize that, you know, there but for the grace of God and some luck. I got to go to rehab and get some of the best treatment possible in this country, while these guys, just because they struck bankrupt in the DNA lottery, never had access to the resources that I did, but they had a lot of the same problems that I did. And uh, that was one, like I said, when I was in jail, 
I had been two years sober at that point, and that's when I made the decision for myself that, uh, you know, once I get out of here, I'm not just going to let this go away. Uh, somebody's got to start talking about this stuff. Somebody's got to own it. And, you know, I go out there and I hate the story about what I did. I hate telling it. I hate the fact that, you know, there was a teenage girl involved. Um, but that's my story and, and I own it and I own up to it. And I know what brought me there and I, you know, try to tell what brought me there. And I do this as a cautionary tale because anybody who is listening to us right now who thinks, yeah, maybe I have a porn addiction, but I could never get to the place that he got. Well, I got to tell you, for, for 20 plus years, I could never get to that place. You know, I would never have gone online and talked to anybody in a chat room and tried to get them to do sexual things, um, especially while I was married. That To me, that's cheating. And I, I, despite the fact that I was online looking at porn, I never would have done something that far down. But that's how bad things got for me. And if you think things can't get that bad for you in addiction, you're wrong. Because addiction never ends well. It ends with losing friends. It ends with losing family. It ends with losing jobs or, you know, uh, material possessions. It can end up, you know, in the legal system like it did with me. And, and worst of all, it can end up with you dead. But addiction never ends well. So anybody listening, whether it's porn or, or drinking or any other addiction, get some help. Get into recovery. Do the hard work and figure out how you got to that place because addiction doesn't end well and you can recover. If I can recover, anybody can recover. I'm no expert, but when you said the numbers with those two guys in prison, like maybe they just wanted to hear from an expert to help solidify their thoughts. But so at the end of the day, how does some i correct me if i'm wrong but i have act acceptance and commitment therapy on my screen and it says it reduces yep. porn viewing as much as 92 percent. so something like that or support groups or medication what's how do you overcome this it, it it depends what works for you. And that's what I always tell people is that it's a cocktail of what works for you. A lot of times, like, you know, if you have cancer or if you have some other ailment, you need to do multiple things to get better. You know, uh, if you screw up your knee real bad skiing, it's, you know, they do an operation, they put pins in, you go to physical therapy, you probably take some pills. It can be a lot of different things and people have to discover it for themselves and stay with it. You know, there are the 12 step groups that absolutely do work wonders for some people people. Um, the therapy was huge for me. And there are many different types of therapy. The therapy that was best for me uh, was cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, because that's really about learning how to uh, analyze your decisions in the moment and look at what those possible outcomes of those decisions are. And that's really what helped me along with dialectal behavior therapy, which is kind of a, a, a process that gets you into the moment, creates uh, you know mindfulness. Um, these were the two that I used, but it, I also did a hell of a lot of research, reading about stuff, learning about it is a great way for me and talking about it. I mean, right now, I am experiencing my recovery plan with you, Bill, because I'm talking about this. I'm going out there and I'm talking about my pornography addiction. And I hope that someone is listening to us and they are learning something from this because that's why I do it. That's what keeps me on the straight and narrow. Uh, and I am on bipolar medication again. 
and I take it religiously every day because obviously I know I need it. Um, it's a little bit different for everybody. There are online forums. There are different types of groups. There's something like Celebrate Recovery, which has a religious angle to it. There's something like Smart Recovery, which uh, doesn't have any steps to it. It's more of a scientific way of doing things. There are many, many ways that you can get into recovery. And for most people I know who have been successful, it's a bit of a mix of different things and a formula. Um, that people use to get better. Um, it's it's a tough process, and it's really tough in the beginning um, to figure out how you're going to get sober and how you're going to stay sober. Uh, you have to learn why you became the way you did, and you have to learn tools to not be that way again. And it, it's a big ask for a lot of people. That's why a lot of people do relapse a couple times. You know, thankfully, I'm just such a stubborn son of a bitch. I didn't. Um, you know, and, and I'm lucky that way um, because it, it, it happens quite a bit. Um, but ultimately, seek help. And what I tell people is if you're afraid to seek help with a therapist, if you're afraid to walk into a room that has a 12-step group, find somebody uh, and you can do this online. They're all over the place. If, if you're a porn addict, come to my website, talk to me. Talk to somebody who has this same addiction that you have, but is further along in recovery. And they'll make you realize that, number one, you're not alone in your addiction. A lot of porn addicts feel like there's something wrong with them. They're the only, they're, they're a bad person. They're an evil person. They deserve shame. Uh, that, you know, they don't, they don't, they may know that it's a, a brain disease, but they don't really appreciate addiction as a brain disease. They think that they're essentially a leper. And in talking to someone who's a porn addict, and I've done this with people many, many times, um, just talking to somebody who has been there can really help. And talking to somebody who has experienced recovery can really help because you're seeing what is possible. And when you're an addict, you don't think anything is possible except that you're ultimately going to lose this game of Russian roulette to whatever your addiction is. So I urge people go online, find somebody who you can talk to and uh, find out how they got sober and begin to plot your own course. Um for me, it was a lot of research. It's a lot of telling my story, and it was a lot of therapy. Got it. All right. I got two more questions for you. Sure thing. One, on your website, you mentioned this. How do you become a master at stealing copper from houses? <laughs> uh, well, that was one of the things that's interesting about jail is that you meet all types of people. And the guy who I became closest to, uh, he had a massive crack addiction going back to his 30s. He was now in his early 60s. And the last time he ended up in jail was because he had branched away from stealing copper out of homes and had started trying to steal carburetors out of cars. And he just didn't have the uh, he didn't have the. Uh, expertise that he did with copper and uh, there were all kind there were there were uh, a lot of ways that you can steal copper out of housing developments uh, and find places to cash it in um, where you minimize the risk quite a bit so um, I'm not going to make this a how-to for people who want to uh, steal copper but uh, 
that was one of the guys I met in jail. He 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 taught me uh, how to steal copper. And now if I ever decide to write a screenplay or write a book and I need a criminal who steals copper, I can make it very, very accurate. Got it. And so we talked about a lot of stuff. To wrap it all up, what's the one message you want to leave or what's something you think you want to elaborate more uh, well on? you know i always dr- try to drive home the same two points and i've mentioned these but it does bear repeating number one there is no stereotypical porn addict if you think you don't fit the profile well there is no profile if you think there's no way my husband is like this there's no way that my son or daughter is like this there is no stereotypical addict it reaches across every demographic and number two If you happen to be the addict, get some help. Uh, Like I said, I never would have dreamed that I ended up where I did. Statistically, with the amount that I drank and and with the amount that I drank and drove, I should have driven into a house or a telephone pole long before I was ever caught doing something illegal with pornography. But that's not what got me. It was the pornography that got me. And I went to a place I didn't think was possible after 20, 25 years, mind you. So if you think that, you know, your porn addiction or any addiction you have, you have it under control. It can't go to sinister places. It can't go to, you know, fatal places. You're wrong. Go get some help. All right. Well, thank you for coming out to the show. This is The Way Podcast. Uh, for the listeners, go to podcasttheway.com to find more out. And before we uh, leave, what's uh, what's the name of your books? Uh, my most recent book is called Porn and the Pandemic. It's more of a uh, traditional journalistic look at how the porn industry changed in the first few months of the pandemic. I interview a lot of addicts. I interview cam girls and guys who do that stuff online and a lot of uh, therapists talking about what the changes were. Uh, before that book, uh, my second book was called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? An Expert and a Former Addict Answer Your Questions. Uh, that's for the partners of addicts. And then finally, my first book, which is uh, autobiographical, and I go much more into the stories of getting arrested, and how I got hooked on pornography. Uh, that's called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. All of them are available on Amazon, but you can also simply come to my website, which is Recovering Porn addict.com and uh, follow the links there and if you think you have any issues with pornography I have a lot of resources on that site so check out recoveringpornaddict.com and get in touch with me if there's anything I can help you with got it and for the listeners if you look in the description you'll see a link for that to make it easier for you Uh, again thanks Joshua for coming out deuces thank you